My guest expert today is cybersecurity expert, Ryan Kovar. How are you, Ryan? Very well, Douglas, thank you. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> so uh, to start off, I wanna ask you a little bit about your history with cybersecurity, where you, where you started, uh, the experience you have up until now and what you've been working on lately. Sure, shoot, so where did you where did you begin? Where did you first get into cybersecurity? Sure. Um, first started in cybersecurity, you know, after I got out of high school, um, decided not to go to college, thought that'd be a waste of time, and I didn't have the grades for it anyway in high school. So I joined the Navy. Um, when I was in the Navy, I got trained to do IT work. And while I was there, just because of what we did in the Navy, I was on an aircraft carrier and we ran a data center there for about 5,000 users. We had about 30 or 60 servers, classified and unclassified. And a big part of my job was securing the information on the servers, both from just making sure people didn't get into it externally from you know uh, satellite links, but also to make sure that people were doing the right things in terms of storing and um, preserving data on the ship. Uh, so I started getting into cybersecurity there. Um, then later on, I kind of, when I got out of the Navy, I started working, doing more system administration work and kind of keeping servers and designing systems. And what I found was that designing systems to work and stopping them from breaking was actually pretty easy because it was always a pretty predictable set of failures. Uh, and that's a lot of what system administration is, is you're backing things up, you're trying to scale, things like that. What I was really finding interesting was actually the human element of preventing people from doing malicious activities uh, intentionally, uh, which is really at the core of what cybersecurity is. And so I started getting more and more into that as an arena. And finally, I started working at a company called um, I think it was KVMG at the time, and I was a lead system administrator there, but they didn't have a security operations center or they didn't have rather a place where people focus on doing security. So I started actually working, um, building out what's now known as a SOC or Security Operations Center, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week monitoring of security events. And while I was there, one of my big jobs was actually creating an idea of compliance. So, you know, like every time you sign up for something and it has like a little NDA, or not an NDA, but a user agreement form and it says, hey, do you consent, blah, blah, blah. My company at the time was a marketing company. What they would do is, uh, it's always interesting, you'll, you'll hear salespeople say, we don't sell your data anywhere. We never bought data at the company I worked at, we leased it, uh, which is legally different because every year we had to renew our lease or show proof that we deleted it. Uh, but part of that meant that we were inspected by these people that we bought from. And we bought from everyone. I mean, we bought from Samsung TV, from Chevrolet, from the US Postal Service, US Census. And what this company did is they would take that and say, hey, if you're trying to do an advertising campaign for this new Chevy truck, we've determined that white heterosexual males who like video games, who drink monster energy trucks and are between the age of 27 and 31 and live in these following states in these zip codes are most likely to buy your truck. And so instead of advertising to 100,000 people and having 0.01% success, we would let them actually advertise to like basically instead of 100,000, 1,000 people and the return on success for that 1,000 people would be 20%. Uh, so much less cost, much higher target. Uh, but what this meant is my company had a significant amount of PII or personally identifiable information. 
And so we'd be audited by these third parties to do uh, what's now known as compliance work. So making sure that our systems were secure, uh, literally someone would come in with either a checkboard or a big binder full of like check boxes. And they'd say things like, oh, are you Sarbanes-Oxley compliant? Yes or no? You know, do you have backups for two months? Yes. Show me an example from one week ago Thursday. And you'd have to go and find a backup tape and load it and pull down a file and show you could restore it. And they'd say, okay, great. Uh, have you had a penetration test, a pen test, showing that somebody actually tried to hack inside and you detected it and prevented it? Uh, can I see the report? So you can go through. So that was my first, one of my first major full-time responsibility jobs in security. I did that for a couple of years. And then one of my best friends from the Navy uh, actually called me and he said he was standing up a, a nation state hunting team at DARPA, uh, which stands for Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. And they're the blue sky research arm of the US military. Uh, so they invented the stealth bomber. They invented the internet that we use today. They invented the M16. They invent uh, hypersonic missiles, all sorts of stuff like that. And actually, DARPA itself has a very small budget. It's actually less budget than the research and development wing of Microsoft. Uh, but what they do is create, basically, they try to be 20 years ahead of our adversaries in national warfare. Um, and my job was to come in and actually help them defend against nation states trying to hack DARPA to find what research we were working on. Uh, and so the job I worked there was two-thirds research and development of cybersecurity technologies and defense methodologies, and one-third actively hunting for adversaries in our network or probing our network. So I did that for a couple of years, and then when my wife graduated from got her PhD, I needed more flexibility. So I started working for a company called Splunk, which is where I work now, which is a software company. It's out of San Francisco. And they provide a software, which I had been using for a couple of years before that, uh, that's a data analytics conversation. It's kind of like our old advertising campaign was Google for your data. So all the things in your life create, um, one of the marketing terms is digital exhaust. So your cell phone creates megabytes of logs per day. Uh, your computer creates logs. Everything you do creates some sort of digital exhaust. And Splunk is a company that has a software that allows you to take those disparate data sources and bring them into one place and actually search them very easily and do it analytics or machine learning or even AI if you wanna be fancy. Um, you can use it for a hundred different things, but one of the best use cases for it is actually cybersecurity, which is what I do. Uh, so now my role at Splunk is a couple different things, one of which is doing some research, another is traveling all over the world and presenting on my research and findings and methodologies, and another is actually visiting customers who've had cybersecurity issues and using our software to help them resolve them. Wow, quite an extensive background. So lately you've been working on the solar winds hack or incident <laughs> in particular with Splunk. So tell me a little bit about that for the people that don't know what happened. This is back in December. Uh, I know more than 18,000 companies or firms were affected directly, including like Microsoft, big, big name guys, and like even the government agencies. So tell me about who got hit and how it's affecting them. Sure. I'm going to go back a little bit further, actually. The, why SolarWinds is in the news, why SolarWinds is interesting, it's, it's been called a no, novel attack. Uh, and what that means is there's a lot of different ways to hack things, but the majority of things are actually pretty basic. Um, you know, they're open up this PDF, that PDF is actually a file that is a Trojan and it gets on your laptop and then people get what's called persistence and then they kind of move laterally, which means they 
find another person on the network and they install their software on that system. And then they kind of just hop around until they find the data that they want. Um, you know, unlike the movies, most hackers, their goal is not to cause damage, but rather to actually not be seen and steal data off the networks, right? That's what most hackers want to do. What was fascinating about SolarWinds is no one's quite sure who it is yet. Um, a lot of people believe it's Russia. I'm not going to comment one way or the other. I don't have the ability to do what's called attribution, which is understanding exactly which nation state did this, but it was almost certainly sponsored by a nation state because of the sophistication. And what they did was they went, what's, it's called a supply chain hack. Now we've heard a lot about supply chain in the news lately around vaccinations and how hard it is to spin up a supply chain. And for those of you who haven't heard of that term, what it refers to is all the bits and bobs that are involved with making something. So for example, your iPhone supply chain goes all the way to the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there's a specific rare earth that is mined in the DR. And if that DR mine is affected, within several months, the ability for China to actually create iPhones for Apple is impacted. And that's part of their supply chain. They also have a supply chain for you know, the glass, for the epoxy, for the rubber. All of this is a supply chain. And that's a very physical, tangible thing. But in the world of software, you also have a supply chain. So I'm going to use the iPhone again, because most people have an iPhone. When you have an update for your operating system and it goes, hey, we're updating your operating system and you click, yes, of course, I want to update my iPhone. It goes off to a server or a remote computer somewhere and it starts downloading software to update your computer. So, or your laptop or your phone, whatever it be. So the idea here is that you have an inherent trust with this third party. You're saying, this is my personal computing device and I trust that that operating system is going to talk to another trusted source to download something to keep it up to date. That all makes sense, right? So what if someone puts a malicious file on that server that you're downloading from? Now we've all thought about this for years. And the way we deal with that is we say, hey, there's a real possibility that someone could hack the Apple server. And instead of me downloading update.1.zip, they're gonna put in their own file called update.1.zip, which actually has a malicious Trojan. So an actual, you know, a virus. And I wouldn't even notice because my phone's gonna go reach out to do that. I said, people said, okay, this, is, this makes sense. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna use a cryptographic hash to represent that file. And it's gonna be very, very complicated. It's called SHA-256 or SHA-512. And it's a cryptographic hash, which means it's unique within trillions and trillions of permutations of what that file could be. So you can do this for any file. Actually, every operating system has the ability to actually go into your, if you have a MacBook, you type SHA-256 or SHA-512 or MD5. These are all ways to do cryptographic hashes. And what the servers do is they say, hey, I'm saying that this is a good file, right? Like literally Douglas, the person says, I am putting a file on this server. I'm gonna run a cryptographic hash on it before I put it on the server. So now I have this hash, right? Which is a very long, I can't remember off the top of my head, but we'll say a 30 digit long alphanumeric uppercase and lowercase string, right? So just very long string of numbers together and letters. And I'm gonna say, I put this file and I'm putting it on this remote server. And when I get it on that remote server, I'm gonna run a cryptographic hashing function again. And then I'm gonna take those two and compare them, right? And what should happen is my cryptographic hash over here and the cryptographic hash over there should be absolutely identical. And then I'm gonna take that hash and put that externally on a website and say, hey, if you download a certain file from us, 
it should have this hash. And I, on my laptop or my phone, can download that file. I can run that cryptographic hashing algorithm and determine like, yes, this is the same thing. Now it'd be ridiculous for us to do that all the time manually. So what happens is that's all built into the software. The phone will reach out. It's going to check the cryptographic hash from another secure location. It's going to verify. And that's how we've gone around that. So that's been around for about 20 years. Works pretty well. But what if the person who does that initial cryptographic hash, what if the file that they have already has a Trojan in it and they don't know it? So when they do that entire process that I just laboriously explained, that means that all that trust is broken because it already has a virus inside of it. Right. And so what's happened here is this nation state actor, suspected Russian actor, actually hacked the development environment of the SolarWinds company. And SolarWinds creates a software that does IT monitoring. So it checks the uptime and downtime of servers. It's heavily used by Fortune 1000 companies. And what they did is they actually went in very early in the process of how software is developed. And they actually inserted about four lines of malicious code inside. And it was so far upstream that no one ever saw it. And that's why it was novel, because then it went through all these checks, all these different checks, and everyone passed because they actually hacked them so early in the process that no one, no one ever saw it, right? And that is something that's never really been seen. It's extremely complicated. It's extremely difficult. When it then gets really interesting is that it was specifically targeted. And when we refer to nation state attacks, one of the big differentiating aspects of them is that they tend to be very targeted to the adversaries that they want to attack. So a nation state doesn't care about Douglas. They don't care about Ryan. What they care about is the United States Department of Defense or the United States Department of Justice or Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman or Apple or whoever it be. They care about getting data from those companies or disrupting them. Um, and so it was interesting about the malware. You said 18,000 customers were affected. That's absolutely true. 18,000 organizations had their phone or their software download this malicious file and execute it on their computer. But of those 18,000, only around 200 of them were told to do something. So they got infected. They called back. It's actually called a callback, right? So the malware installs on the people's computer using SolarWinds. That malware says, okay, great. I need to get my next set of instructions. I'm going to call back to, I'm going to call home. Exactly what it does. It's called a command and control channel. So it calls home to this other server, right? And that's what malware does. It usually communicates back. So it's a very little bit of malware. And all it does is say, hey, can I execute? Can I find a home in my company? All right, I'm comfy. I'm gonna call home and ask what to do next. So when it called home, what was fascinating was 17,890 times, give or take, the server went, nah, bro, we're cool. Don't do anything. Just, just do whatever, we don't care. Just stay there. We're not gonna talk to you. But for those other 200 customers, they actually got a specific list of instructions to maintain persistence, to move laterally, and then also open up a communication channel back to this remote server to allow a human operator to ride back in and start hacking the networks. And those 200 customers, give or take, were United States Department of Defense customers, Microsoft, Apple, US Court of Justice, I don't know the names for sure. This is all third-party stuff that's been in the news. So I'm not saying anything that I know personally, but basically these are people who are reported of having seen this. In reality, I don't know if you realize this, Pima government 
Pima local government was one of the affected uh, people hacked, as was Page, Arizona. Uh, or sorry, Pinal County. Pinal County and Page, uh, Page, Arizona were both places that were part of this nation state hacking. No one's quite sure why Pinal County and Pima County and Page, but they all have US military installations within them. Uh, so that's a very likely chance. So that's what was interesting and why solar winds is something you've even heard of, why it was in the news. Um, it was specifically targeted. It was very novel. There's no way almost anyone could have detected this uh, from that novel attack point of view. The second part is that everything after it got installed was actually just normal cybersecurity stuff. Like people actually found the solar winds attack in August. They just didn't know how it got on the systems, right? Because that ingress method as it's called was so interesting and unexpected. So what happened is people would find the bad stuff happening in the lateral movement, like I talked about, when they actually started doing bad things on the network. People detected that and they traced it all the way back to the solar wind server, but then they couldn't figure out how the solar wind server got hacked. But Occam's razor would say that, oh, we just don't have the data for that. We don't have the visibility into how the server got hacked, but we know the server got hacked. The reality was the server got hacked because it downloaded this malicious update, which no one had ever seen before. It only been theorized. So that's where things got interesting. Um, and I've been talking for a while. I'm sure you have questions or things along those lines. So I'll let you, I'll let you go before I say what I actually did. No worries. So from what I, what I got from that was essentially that this hack was like a dormant hack that had been sleeping in uh, solar winds for who knows how long could have been years. Right. And well, then 487 days ago. Okay. So about more than so a year. year ish. Yep. Yeah. So it, it was in the code dormant somewhere that it was could go uh, untraced. And then at some point it kind of clicked and started picking and choosing what it wanted to screw with. Right. Oh, you think about that. It's, okay. um, you know, it, it happens, basically it all happens when it happens, but then it requires a human to do something. So it kind of be like, you know, if you had a thousand cell phones in front of you and a thousand rain and you only decided to pick up four or five of them, that's kind of like what's happening here is these servers are receiving thousands of callbacks and the operator is looking at the, and they're actually called operators amusingly. Um, you know, the human operator is looking at the phone number like, oh, where did this come in from? Uh, U of A? No, we're good, we're fine. We're not gonna, we don't wanna pick up that one. Oh, Pinal County? Yes, sir, we're gonna pick up the phone. Hey, I want you to go do this. And that will kind of go through. So they had to work at their leisure uh, but as soon as that code was executed on the host system, everything started to occur. Uh, but then they had to decide what to do. And this is known as dwell time. And they had a 485-day dwell time on those systems and at SolarWind. That means that that's how long people are in the network and undetected for, uh, which is a very long time to have access to a system. Yeah. So what, what have you been doing personally then, investing in it? Yeah, so what we do with our systems is the, the software we use, Splunk, allows you to bring in, like I said earlier, disparate data sources. So it could be Windows event logs, um, which are just basically off of Microsoft systems. Uh, there's a concept called wire data or network metadata, which is, you know, right now we're talking on Zoom. Zoom works on a protocol, that's what the internet works on, primarily TCP IP. Um, which is a fun thing to look up, but the entire world runs off of TCP IP, which is a protocol. And a protocol is how the internet works. And what that means is 
there's something called bits and bytes, which you've probably heard of. And how those are transmitted between computers is written up in a document. It's actually called an RFC, a request for comments, which establishes something called a protocol. Protocol in regular English is often used for like, what is the protocol for sitting at the dinner table with an ambassador, right? That's exactly the same of what a protocol is in the networking world. What that means is, what is the order that we receive bits and bytes in? How have you encapsulated or how have you compressed the data and all sorts? And there's different protocols. There's thousands of different protocols, but the one that's normally used is TCP IP. Why am I explaining that? Um, TCP IP is how data moves. So if you send someone a movie and that movie is 1.2 gigabytes, right? You don't want to have to look through all that data to find out who sent it, right? You just want to know like, hey, who's the from address and who's the send, send to address, right? You don't care that it's the Avengers. You care that Douglas sent this to Ryan. That's called metadata, network metadata. So the size of the file, the who sent it, the IP address of who sent it, these are all things that are network metadata or wire data. Um, so those are things that are hugely helpful for identifying nation state threats and attackers. So what our software does, it can marry up the Windows event logs, which are basically like, hey, I double click this file and it ran, right? And it will say like, C program file slash 64 slash cmd.exe ran against avengers.mpeg, right? And from that, I can infer that this file was executed by this user, which is also in there. So Douglas, you know, um, DR, DRieger ran this file and it ran at this date and at this time and executed this specific movie, right? And I can take that and say, oh, well, how did Douglas get Avengers.mpeg? Well, it looks like an hour before that, I look at my network metadata, which comes from a whole different set of systems. And I can see that Ryan Kovar, rkovar at gmail.com, sent this file over to Douglas. And it's Avengers.mpeg. And I can see it happen from this IP address, which is my computer. And it went to this IP address, which is Douglas's computer. And I can look at the IP address of the log that I had over here that showed that you ran the file. And I can say Douglas's IP address is 204.76.13.5. And that the file that Ryan sent something to was 205.74. Ergo, these are the same computers. Thus, I can now make a whole transaction of Ryan Kovar sent this file to this IP address at this time, and it was executed and opened up by this. Before something like Splunk existed, you'd have to go to each one of those places. And then you'd have to do exactly, you know, we talked about Cliff Stoll uh, earlier in the cuckoo's egg, he would actually have to write this out on a whiteboard or a chalkboard and say, this IP address, talk to this IP address. At this time, it transferred this much data uh, on this date, new line. My software can do that all at once and all together in a certain place. So when you start looking at the solar winds attack, what we're able to do is say, hey, it looks like the solar winds device executed this file. It looks like they then remotely tried to log on to John Doe's computer, um, and that John Doe's computer was connected to via the SolarWinds computer, and the SolarWinds computer was talking to an IP address out of um, what's known as um, a virtual private server, so a kind of like an AWS instance, a, a remote computer, and that that remote computer uh, was actually located in uh, Ukraine. And Ukraine is infamous for not having prosecution laws for hacking. So a lot of attacks come out of Ukraine. So from this, I can see that someone in the UK, Ukraine logged into the SolarWinds server using this new malware that we talked about. 
while they were on the SolarWinds server, they laterally moved to John Doe's computer on the internal network. They open up this file and then they try to steal this data and move it back out. And those are the sort of things that I was helping customers with. Um, I've also done a couple of talks with congressional subcommittees for um, cybersecurity, kind of explaining how Splunk sees this and what we're seeing in the world um, and a couple other government organizations I won't go into uh, helping explain the telemetry or the visibility that we have as a company globally because we work with not only United States government and United States customers but we also have I think we sell in like 165 different countries um, so I've helped hundreds of customers with this. So how do you feel about the future of cybersecurity? and I, I know we're at a point where data is like so overblown, it feels like there's so much data. Every every tap and swipe is saved and recorded for feels like advertising purposes for the most part. But how do you feel about the future going forward? Um, I think I'm going to continue to be extremely well paid until the day I retire. Uh, life is good. I made a good career choice. Um, it's going to get bigger and bigger. The, the differences are how we do cybersecurity. Uh, you talked about the scale of data. Um, there's a lot of buzzwords. You've probably heard of machine learning, things like this, AI. Um, they're very useful for sorting through large scales of data and trying to determine what it is you're trying to look for and infer relationships from. The amount of data that people can generate now is overwhelming a lot of times. And so they have to use tools to kind of sort through and get them to concentrate on what is the most useful aspects of that data. Um, the problem is whenever you think, what, why I love what I do for a living is it's never fixed because you're always competing with someone else. Like you can make a perfect widget, right? Like there's things in life that like, for, for example, the internal combustion engine, we haven't made any significant technological progress on the internal combustion engine since like 1937. It is still just a metal block that compresses and aerosized gasoline to explode thousands of times a minute. And although it's polluting, it is by far and away the most efficient methodology of converting a liquid energy source, which has a high calorie number into energy, like extremely efficient. Uh, we've made it better, we've made it more efficient, but it's still the same technology. I, something fascinating about my career, I've been doing this now for 22 years, give or take. And of those 22 years of knowledge that I have, only the last four of them, I'd say 80% of my relevant knowledge is in the last four years. So you're constantly having to re-educate, you're constantly having to learn, and you've never solved any problem because there's always somebody else who's trying to break what you're doing. And as long as people have valuable things on their computers, there will be adversaries who are trying to break into them, whether it's through software, whether it's through hardware. So actually physically coming up ways to bypass security controls on a computer. Or, you know, the biggest joke is we can spend all the money you want on hardware and software security, but the biggest way people get hacked is called social engineering, which is basically just me calling, you know, doing something to make you more likely to click, you know, click something or perform an action for me. So those come down to a couple things. Like one could be, uh, I ran a pen test once where I sent an email to the whole company saying, hey, turns out your health insurance plan has changed. Click here to get more information. People will always click on something new with their health insurance. Um, there was actually a really good study that I read from West Point for university students uh, where the pen test was done during finals. 
And in the middle of the finals, uh, sort of finals week, the pen tester sent an email to all students said, hey, uh, just letting you know, your dates for your exams may have changed. Click here to find out more information. And they had a 97% success rate of students at West Point clicking on that, right? And that's almost impossible to defend against because even though these people are in the military, they've been trained, they know cybersecurity is mandatory, your heart races, man. You see something like, hey, my exams have changed. You're not even thinking about it. You're just, you're just clicking that button. Um, or you'll have some of the biggest joke is called the county passport inspector, where someone did a whole study where they would call up and say, hello, I'm from Pima County, Arizona. We're checking local passwords. I just want to make sure that your bank account password is super secure. So if you can just tell me what bank account you use, bank you use, and then tell me your password or the phone, and I'll, I'll let you know if that's secure or not. And they have like a 20% success rate, right? And like, yeah. what can a software do against that? Um, you know, there's been a lot of research in just the last two weeks. Like you're probably used to getting like, hey, you sign up for an account and then you have to get an SMS or a text on your phone to unlock something. Um, there's services in the United States that you can actually pay for like $20 to actually reroute someone's text to your phone, um, which means if you do this then you're gonna get the unlock passwords, right? And the way around that is you have to download a third-party software like from Google, Google Authenticator or Microsoft Authenticator which then provides its own independent algorithmic cryptographic hash token, uh, which is interesting. But like what we just talked about for SolarWinds, what if someone goes all the way up the supply chain and puts something nasty up there and Google doesn't realize it? So yeah, it's gonna get different. It's gonna get weird. It's gonna get the same. It's all different. And I make a lot of money doing this and we'll do so until I retire. So it's a good life. Yeah, the, at my school, we have uh, phishing emails all the time. And the university has to constantly warn kids because people fall for it all the time. Like, oh, I'll give you a job with all this money and everything. And I mean, I still get phone calls all the time from social engineers. But I, I lead them on now. I pretend to be like an old man or something, uh, really slow, fumbling my words, kind of bugging them because I'm taking too long to give them my money. And then eventually... I just kind of call them out and say they're a pretty intermediate, shitty uh, social engineer that they got to study up if they're going to want to do it properly. But yeah, no, I mean, and the, there's been a whole bunch of research done talking about like the really bad phishing emails you get. Uh, they're actually now have not intentionally, but they've actually evolved to the point where their goal is to not have anyone who has half a brain click on them or interact with them. They're actually intentionally designed to be so bad that only people who are going to actually be susceptible to them will open them and read them and do anything. And that way they don't spend time. And it's, it was not intentional. It's just that people figured out that they had more success by writing something that you and I would look at and go, this is so obviously a Nigerian phishing attempt. Uh, but it's actually turned into that. Not that Nigerian Nigerians have, you know, that's, uh, they have like over 60 languages, I think, in Nigeria, but uh, one of the official ones is English. Um, and like Nigerians know how to speak English perfectly well. They know how to write English perfectly well. Um, so the fact that they have these emails coming in that look, you know, which we would literally call like, oh, it's a Nigerian phishing scheme. It's because they have found out through evolutions of change, pivoting and modifying to make their emails look like that for greatest profit, uh, which is kind of a fascinating aspect of the entire ecosystem. Yeah, that's funny. They don't want to have to deal with the hassle of people that are that yeah, know they what they're doing. They don't want to hear from you. They want to hear from your mother. Yeah. So uh, I want to ask you about privacy and like 
I, the Patriot Patriot Act is really old now, right? And I and but I want to ask you how you feel about that. Are we any better than we were before? Are we more exposed? I think, or what? Uh, it kind of goes. It's an interesting thing. I worked a lot with the Patriot Act when I was in the government. Um, you know, you may have read about. Edward Snowden, and when he came out and revealed that, you know, the NSA was looking at a lot of stuff, I actually worked with a lot of the people who were cited and were working at the NSA at the time. And the reality is when you're doing large scale foreign intelligence collections, it is impossible not to record Americans, even though that's illegal. But because of the size of the data you're talking about, uh, you know, perfect example, I know your family very well, they lived in Paris, you lived in Germany. Um, they would have no reason to know if they were listening to foreign national calls in Germany, uh, like all of Germany or all of Ukraine or all of whomever, they would have no necessarily way to tell that they were collecting an American citizen who happened to live in Germany or in France or in Romania, wherever it be. And so when you look at a lot of the data, what you find is, yes, correct, they did break that law, but the law also was impossible not to break to do the mission that they were told to do. Right. So if they were said, hey, stop 9-11 and they say, well, we would have loved to, uh, but there were three people who lived in Afghanistan who were American. Ergo, we couldn't do any intelligence gathering there. So I know we had 9-11, but we did not listen to those three Mormons phone calls who live in and are proselytizing in Afghanistan. Like that's just not something America would be OK with. So it is a very difficult thing to do where a lot of the stuff went over the lines is the programs especially that then allowed for people to misuse the data for personal use, which were the cases of people like socking their ex-girlfriends and kind of going through that through the data. And I'm, I'm specifically talking about certain things I know about in the Patriot Act. And the incredible thing is the reason Snowden was able to actually release those files about that is because those people were actually caught by the internal checks and balances of the NSA that showed that there was misuse and misconduct and those people were then punished. So it's kind of paradoxical because we're upset that these people did that and rightfully so, but we only know about it because they were detected by the internal checks and balances showing that these people were done. There's another aspect that came up in the Patriot Act called FISAs, which is, I can't remember the term, but FISA, you can look it up later. And FISAs allows the government to actually intercept direct on purpose phone calls between people. They're not allowed to do it for Americans. Uh, but they can do it for people that they're trying to find information on. I know about it from hacking, but they do it for terrorists. So it basically means like if the NSA wants to listen to someone's conversation uh, in Russia, talking to another person in Russia, uh, they can do that. Um, this is very similar to wiretapping in America, but it's with different technologies. You know, those things are extremely difficult to get get They're extremely difficult to get the initial FISA warrant for. Like you have to show a lot of due cause, especially if there's any chance on an American, because that's a very big difference then. Hey, we're casting a big net. We might get a couple dolphins. We're, we're going for tuna, but we might get a couple dolphins. This is like, I have a high powered rifle. Um, right next to my tuna is a dolphin. And the judge will go, well, I don't care. It's too, too risky. You're not allowed to do it, right? Or it's like, hey, we've identified there's no tuna within 20 miles. This or sorry, no dolphin within 20 miles. This tuna is all by itself and the judge will go, okay, go ahead and kill the dolphin, right? Like go ahead and shoot. That's kind of how FISAs work. So those are my big experiences with those two that the majority of people who are executing those tools 
are doing the best they can with the parameters that they're given. The reverse of that is that those tools and those people at this time are only those people, right? And so if you don't necessarily agree with the government changes that occur in the last couple of years or previously, or you recognize that those might be perfectly fine today, but not to make allusions to Nazi Germany, but like Nazi Germany occurred in the space of about 14 years. So you go from the Weimar Republic to the fall of Berlin, and it's you know 1928 to 1945, right? And so if they had passed like these really good law, good laws in 1928 that were to help the Weimar Republic against its external enemies, and then someone else came in power and then was able to use that same legislation and data to make decisions, then everything goes tits up. So those are the areas that people aren't aware of, I think, in the Patriot Act is it's not necessarily about, you know, this idea, one thing I always hate when people say is like, I'm not afraid of the government listening because I have nothing bad to say. Like, I don't do anything wrong. And it's like, you might not do anything wrong today by today's standards and by today's government, but that doesn't mean in 20 years because data lives forever. Like your internet background, like that's one of the huge differences between our two generations is when I grew up, there was no computer-driven evidence of my childhood. Your entire childhood is documented. Your entire shenanigans as a youth are documented forever. Like when people start going up for president from your generation, there's going to be Facebook pages. There's going to be Instagram postings. There's, it's not just like, oh yeah, he, Obama and I smoked pot together. Well, did they, did they not? Who knows? Like, no, this is gonna be like people with giant blunts and heroin needles all around them, like throwing up peace signs on their Instagram and going wasted for life. And people were like, yeah, I guess that did happen. Like, you know, like the, the point is with this digital history, it's around forever. And that's what the game changing part is. And what I'm not comfortable with is the idea of the government tomorrow. I might be okay with the government and society of today. I don't know what the government of tomorrow and the next 20 years will look like. So a little bit yeah. of a long-winded answer, but. And to your point of the future of politicians in particular, of their backgrounds and how it's like going to be very transparent. Do you think that's going to desensitize people to people's history? Like, oh yeah, but so-and-so did much worse, right? Because we see everybody's. Or do you oh. think we're just going to start being more careful about what we put online? Preferably. I, think a bit of both. I mean, Donald Trump proved that if people care enough about your political party and your specific benefits that you'll provide to them, that they don't care about your history. I mean, we had evangelical Christians praising Donald Trump, literally calling him the second coming of God, but this is a man with four ex-wives. He cheated on, like, I'm not even going to allege things, just the things that are documented legal events, right? And so there's an aspect of, does it now just turn into nothing? Like, yeah, okay, whatever, but everyone did that. It's like, well, yeah, everyone did do that. And now we have the photographic proof, don't throw the first rock, right? Like you uh, sin. So that part... I don't know where that's going to go. It's just going to be different. I don't know if it's going to go one way or the other, but it will be different. Um, things that were unimaginable 20 years ago are now happening. So, yeah. What do you think of um, the Russian bot things with the 2016 election? Do you think there's credibility to that? Or... I was yeah. involved with investigations yeah. for that. That's, I mean, there's some great books actually. You want to read another fun book? This is a really great book by Tom, uh, Professor Thomas Ridd. Um, it's all about in the 1950s and 60s, um, Russian KGB 
uh, which is the you know historical predecessor of what we have now for in terms of political disinformation. Uh, the Russian KGB was and are the masters of political disinformation. So they actually did this um, did this campaign in the 60s where they're trying to, I can't remember the specific thing they're trying to stop, but basically there was a lot of talk of reunification. Oh, it was right around the Berlin Wall. And there was talk of the reunification of Berlin and like they were specifically trying to drum up, um, drum up German hatred among the allies and reminding people of Germany's past and West Germany and East Germany and just trying to stir shit up. And so they have documented proof and evidence and testimonies of how these Germans or these Russians went out to a Russian town about 30 miles outside of Moscow. And you have to remember this is after the Great War. Like America likes to think we won World War II by ourselves, but arguably Russia did much more. They had 12, 10 million, 12 million people died from the Nazi invasion. So they actually went 30 miles outside of the town with Kate, or Moscow to a small shit village and then spray painted swastikas all over the Russian Orthodox Church and knocked down, um, knocked down gravestones and put down swastikas and then stepped back and just wanted to see what was happening. And what happened was, of course, everyone blamed young men for being like, oh, these young boys are doing all this dumb shit and like this needs to stop and Nazi symbols are bad. What was fascinating was within a month, the town youth were doing it by themselves so even though there were no Nazi youth in the town, they were actually doing it to show like all this stuff going on within the, like basically to recreate because they were blamed for it anyway. So screw them, we're just gonna do it. So the Russian KGB took this as like, oh, this is a good idea. And then they sent KGB operatives all over the world. And within the space of a couple months, they started spray painting swastikas on synagogues and knocking down Catholic churches and scraping swastikas into floors. And what happened was the media went crazy about this because it's you know, the rebirth of the Nazi party and what is Germany gonna do about this? And then Germany, West Germany at the time had a huge reaction, like we need to crack down and you can see this it's in the media. And then what happened was youth in these towns actually act as a multi force multiplier and then other people who were probably Nazi sympathizers started doing it. So where there had been no evidence of these Nazi symbols and swastikas at all, very few numbers of Russian agents of disruption actually were able to cause massive amounts of global panic and outrage and this disinformation. And if you look at what occurred for the media in 2016, if you look at all these things, it's you change the medium, you change the timeline, you change the adversary, it's like literally someone took up a book and was like, you know, okay, okay, get rid of spray paint, put in Facebook posts, check, like kind of go down the list. And I work with people at Facebook who are literally on the political disinformation detection team. Um, it's worse than you'll ever know. It's insane. Um, yeah, it happens, it's real, it's happening today. It happened in the last election. Um, it's happening now at local elections. Uh, because they're trying to influence um, much at, at, a, at a macro level. Um, yeah. Yeah. So my, my only question with that is, do you think it's solely Russia or do you think any major powers could be sending oh, bots on Twitter and Facebook? I know I, we do it oh, too. Uh, not even major powers. What's interesting about cybersecurity warfare, cyber warfare is the cost to entry is very low. 
right? Compared to like building an F-35 Joint Strike Fighter is $100 million just to build one. That doesn't go into the 20 years of research and development it takes to create a plane that's that advanced. Like there are nation state adversaries in small third world countries that are almost as good as what we can produce in America. Not as good, but like pretty damn close, like very close in parity. Um, Vietnam has a very active threat or cyber security team. Um, North Korea, mostly a shithole. They have the Lazarus Group. Lazarus Group is their nation state funded cyber uh, team. You may remember when Sony got hacked a couple of years ago and like they had all those ransomware. Well, they've actually moved on from that. Now they actually primary goal is Bitcoin and ransomware. So they actually install ransomware on Western companies and demand Bitcoin payments. And now a double digit percentage of the national GDP of North Korea is from this cyber security or cyber warfare organization uh, doing Bitcoin theft and ransoms. And that just blows my mind, right? So like, North Korea is a massive Bitcoin holder. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, look it up, it's, it's fascinating, but that is a large part of their GDP at this point. External GDP is based on um, Bitcoin manipulation through either theft or ransomware um, payments. Sounds like North Korea. <laughs> yeah, so that's what's interesting about it is for every, there's a hack several years ago called Stuxnet, which was at the time arguably the most advanced attack. And it's never been 100% attributed, but it's 99% almost certainly a United States and Israeli joint venture. And what it did was it actually created malware, we or they, whoever it was, the equation group, created malware that was specifically targeting a type of Siemens, um, not the biological fluid, but the German manufacturer of industrial equipment, um, a centrifuge, a part of a centrifuge that was used to separate uh, an aspect of uranium or plutonium. Um, and it was, that's all this malware did. So it could be installed on a computer. And if you didn't have the right operating, like if you didn't have this installed or plugged in, it would do nothing other than try to find itself a path to another computer. And so this spread throughout the world, no one noticed it. And what happens is what's fascinating about Stuxnet is most nuclear centrifuges and most nuclear power plants have something called an air gap network, which means they are not connected to the internet for security reasons but you still have to get software and files back and forth. And so what people do is they have thumb drives, right? USB, you put it in, you pull it out and you do it. Well, Stuxnet was actually so smart it could get on the USB drives. And then when it found itself on a nuclear centrifuge, it would determine if there was Farsi in the operating system or documents on the system. And if it was an Iranian nuclear centrifuge, it would actually install and execute its payload. And what that did, that centrifuge payload did, is it changed the output of the revolutions per minute of the centrifuge to be misinterpreted. So the operator would put in like, oh, we want this to spin at uh, 100,000 RPMs. It would come back and say, hey, I'm spinning at 100,000 RPMs. In reality, it was sp spinning at 900. So nine times faster or whatever it be, right? I'm making a number, but you get the idea. And the point is, it actually caused explosions. It was causing this expensive equipment to, um, to degrade and go down, but it only affected Iranian centrifuges. And that is one of the most advanced attacks. So it's been attributed most likely to the United States and Israel. But like, you don't have to do that. You can still have the county passport inspector 
for someone who speaks perfectly fluent English, call from Indonesia or from you know Sudan or wherever and wreck absolutely havoc, right? So there's a there's a great equaling of cybersecurity compared to a lot of other uh, types of warfare. Yeah, you don't have to be a nuclear physicist to know that any kind of malware or anything running improperly in a nuclear reactor is not a good thing. Yeah, not what, not what you want for that day. Yeah, no, no, I wouldn't want to go to work on that day. So um, I, the last thing I want to ask you about, uh, I'm into economics and I pay attention to the markets and things like that. So I want to get your perspective on data. Data itself feels... They say it's more valuable than oil now, right? And it, I feel like it's sold through third-party API software, right, in between companies, like, over and over and over and over again. And part of me feels like, okay, the every swipe you do is a little piece that they're selling to someone and they're selling it to each other. Yep. And I get, I get concerned with when things are sold, they inherently are worth more, right? Every time it's sold, it's worth more in value. So part of me is concerned, is there like a data bubble where we kind of overvalue some of the this data when in reality, when they open it up and go look at it or the AI looks at it, machine learning, whatever, they realize, oh, this is useless. We can't really do much with this. Well, I think the, the question there then becomes the value. So there's been a lot of economists who focus on this. And so, for example, someone has actually quantified the value of your PII. Right, like your social security number has a quantifiable value, and that value has actually dropped as it has become more common and more capable. Like there's been more social security numbers breached and lost. Right, so I'm making up number here, but we'll say again, like maybe 10 years ago, your social security number was worth $100. Now it's worth like 50 cents, and the reason because the volume, right, which is the supply and demand. Now, you know, scammers can get thousands and go on the dark web or you know wherever and Silk Road and get these social security numbers by the tens of thousands. And then they also reduce value because people have stopped using them for a lot of things. Now, you know, 20 years ago, social security numbers were like the key, primary key for so many aspects of people's financials and things like that. Well, now people recognize that those are stolen and identity theft. So now there's all these other checks and balances. So those individual pieces of data have lost value. What has not happened is the conflation of multiple bits of data still have value. Um, and where things have really changed is if you wanna talk about non-illegitimate use, um, you know, we message today over Instagram, right? Instagram is a free product. Um, they are mining all the clicks you make. They're looking at how long you spend on postings. They're determining if you, you know, if, you're, if you look at things that have sneakers, they're looking at things that, you know, hey, this guy actually just really likes um, chicks with bikinis a lot more. This one really likes guys with bikinis, weird. Um, this one's really looking at cooking. This guy looks at this. Then they're doing image analysis for everything you're posting. Every single thing you post on Instagram has image analysis done on it. All the text that you write and the comments, not the individual messages to my knowledge, but the comments you write are all reviewed, right? And what this means is, and anecdotally, this is 100% true for me, the advertising that comes through for Instagram is really good. Like shit that pops up on my Instagram ads, I actually buy, like I like it, like it's cool. But if I just log onto a website and I'm like, I am i don't need Centrum over 50 vitamins, like what the hell are you doing here? Like Facebook adverts would never ever present me a Centrum over 50, like mine are right now are all like cooking supplies, 
Bernie's mountain dog toys and bicycling, right? Which are my three major hobbies right now. And Instagram provides interesting, innovative things that appeal to me based off the data because it is a free product. And if it is a free tool, you are the product. You are the revenue stream, right? So for Instagram and Facebook, the reason their stock, well, Facebook, because they own Instagram, the reason their stock is so huge is because they have turned into a way to convert data into a direct revenue stream. And they can tell advertisers, if you advertise with us, your revenue will go up and here's how we will do it. Um, so as long as people use free products like Gmail, like Facebook, like Instagram, like whatever, and they don't pay for it, they will be productized themselves, which brings value to all of the external data that they're using. The big difference that we're gonna see in 20 years, within the next 20 years, is that data collection will be happening all around us passively without us knowing it. So it's already happening with your cell phone. Like if you're walking down the streets of any major city, your cell phone itself is providing beaconing information and they can tie that back into a whole different bunch of things. Uh, if you get on the tube in London, your SSEI, I think it's SSEI, whatever it is, unique identifier for your phone can be traced and they will actually begin doing adverts in the long-term that are unique targeted to you. So that's gonna be the big difference is that data, the, the, the value per unit of data, whatever that is, will be lower, but the number of data points per person will be greater. So there will be a higher value, especially as it's tied into revenue streams of advertisement. Okay, so it's only gonna get more precise on what we wanna oh, yeah. buy. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of scary. I feel like sometimes I'm thinking of something and then I see an ad about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a joke people right they always are like oh our yeah. cell phones listening to me because i was just talking about this and then there's an advert and it's like well no you were talking about it and then you googled it and then you visited a website and you did all these other things um which then eventually yeah. resulted in it saying like this person they probably want that new pan yeah but it, it's fast it's remarkably fast it that's is it's, it's incredible yeah that's why yeah. facebook is one of the most valuable companies in the world yeah scarily so considering their history and who they are yeah. and everything. But, yeah. Anyways, thank you for coming on, Ryan. It was awesome talking to you. Sure. Hope you enjoyed yeah. and uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Congrats. You made it to the very end of the video. Thank you for sticking around. I hope you learned something. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave a like, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, and let your friends know. We'll see you next time.